Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to The Book Pod with Corey Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boon Oorang Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome everyone to today's episode of The Book Pod. I'm delighted to welcome award-winning journalist and author Paul Daly to the pod room. Paul, thank you for coming in. It's great to see you. Thanks, Corrie. It's great to be here. Last night we had an event here in Melbourne and Paul was our guest and we honoured the arrival of your new novel, Jesus Town, which has just been published by Alan and Unwin. Congratulations, Paul. The crowd loved you. Yeah, thanks, Corrie. It was great. It was great to to talk to readers and and to some people who've actually read the book. I was surprised that a number already already had and it's only been out a week, so that was great. Well, I'm so pleased. I think this book has enormous traction and it's really going to take off. The word of mouth already has spread and indeed the reviews have been positive, although you tell me you you try and not read the reviews. Last night's event was a reminder. It was such a joy to do a live in-person event, particularly here in Melbourne, a town that has suffered its share of lockdowns and and cancelled author talks. And so many local authors last year and the year before just missed out on having a celebration of their book because we had to do it on Zoom. It just wasn't the same. Yeah, I know a lot of lot of writers have been broken hearted because their books were coming out last year and it, they just didn't get the same vibe. And actually, this was originally meant to come out last year, but I but I held off not because of COVID, but because I wanted one more pass at it. I mean, I spent a long time on this book and and there were just a few things that I wanted to tweak to be to get completely right. So I held it for a year, but it's fortuitous I did because now I'm doing this sort of stuff. I wondered what it was like as you were talking last night and you said that the book had taken you five or six years to work on this novel and to finish it. You were born in Melbourne, grew up in Melbourne and have lived in Canberra and London for many years and now you live in Sydney. And of course Sydney was struck by that unexpected and very long lockdown last year. Were you in the writing or the editing process at that stage? I was deep in the writing process at that stage. So from June till about November, I did the final draft, and that was draft, I don't know, 12 or 13, and I rewrote from the beginning of the book to the end, so I was... Did you really? Yeah, yeah, I was I was deep in the zone then, so I was spending, you know, seven, eight hours a day in my study with my dogs who are always in there with me, 
working working on the novel and um, my head was totally in it. So it was still in my head when I was in the rest of the house in lockdown and when I was walking my 5K circuit every every evening with, with my dogs. I so lockdown actually wasn't such a bad experience for you? It was a weird experience. Um, being sort of so in the zone at that time was um, – it was a bit otherworldly really and a couple of these characters, you know, Patrick and, and Nathaniel, Ranny uh, – Pretty hard to live with in, in your head the whole time, you know. They're not they're, they're not the most pleasant of guys, um, although they are complex. So it was um, it was a weird lockdown for me. I bet it was. <laughs> I bet it was. It, it was such a. Fu- it's been such a funny and weird couple of years. And indeed, last night's event was the first event we've had in a year. We had a brief moment in Melbourne. We had a respite. I think probably it was about June last year yeah. where we, we had our last, um, our yeah. most recent event. So everybody was a bit kind of, we weren't very match fit last night. Oh, there was a great, great um, vibe. Everybody was drinking though. a lot. They were. Everyone was enjoying a drink and a chat. And I felt like people were really up, actually. I, think, I felt like people were really happy to be out at an event like that. You know, notwithstanding it was my book, it could have been another book, but I think people were really pleased to be there. Well, you're a journalist of so many years standing, and indeed you and I met years ago at the Sunday Age. We worked together in the late 80s and early 90s. But for many years, of course, what, what journalists do is that they observe and they, and they, they pick up the zeitgeist and they, they in, immerse themselves in various communities they're writing about. Particularly in your case, you've had it spent a lot of time in the top end in Indigenous space. But I wonder whether you have any perceptions or, or sort of ideas about the impact of lockdown and COVID of the past couple of years, the good, the bad and the ugly, how we might have, might have changed for the better or perhaps the worse. What have we lost or perhaps what have we gained? I, I can say that personally, and this is something I've, I've written a little about and ref- reflected a lot on, I became much more aware of my immediate surroundings and my community and my local environment. Um, you know, suddenly I live under a flight path in Sydney, as so many people do. Suddenly it was silent. And I was hearing birds in the morning instead of aeroplanes from from, um, 6am and I was walking the streets every evening and I was listening, you know, and hearing music in people's houses and smelling the smells of of, or the aromas of of cooking. And um, I got to kind of know the neighbourhood by sense for the first time and I really liked that. And this is something... I've been thinking about a lot more recently too. I think I've carried that into post-lockdown and I used to walk a lot before that with earphones in, like I was, you know, permanently wired into the internet listening to a podcast or radio or something and now I'm walking in silence and sure the sounds have changed but I'm hearing the sounds of my urban environment and I'm thinking a lot more. And also, you know, one of the things about lockdown, you know, this is a very privileged position because, you know, we've, we've got enough money and a great place in Sydney and, you know, plenty of room. But I really enjoyed being home with, with my family. I really liked the pattern of not having the pressure to, on, on me to sort of face outwards all the time and to f- forever be speaking or um, pushing a message out. I really enjoyed being at home. It must have been a curious space also for your, your wife, Lenore Taylor, who's the editor of Guardian Australia, and she had to run the newspaper from home on Zoom, didn't she? <laughs> she, did, she did. We're, we're really fortunate that we The got... dogs must have been quite perplexed. What's going on? Oh, the dogs were, like, totally freaked out because suddenly everyone's around the whole time, you know. Usually it's just me. But um, 
we're really lucky. We've got a uh, granny flat above our garage, so Lenore was running Guardian Australia from from up there. But it was interesting because you know we would interact at lunchtime and and um, in the late afternoon sometimes, and she, of course. Because there was no travel time, that became work time for her. So she was working harder than, than ever. But um, I was getting a great insight by osmosis, really, into what her existence is really like. And, and sure, I've worked in newsrooms and, and I get that it's it's non-stop, but it's more non-stop than ever now because there isn't a news cycle at ever. No, ends. you don't put the first edition to bed and the press is rolled at 11 and you go no, home and sleep for 10 hours. That, that's right. And, and, you know, there are staff to manage during lockdown, during COVID, and that becomes sort of quite... You need to look out for people's, you know, emotional wherewithal as well as, you know, their their journalistic wherewithal. So, yeah, she was she was busy and um, it gave me sort of great insight into the way it works, actually. So you've, uh, for many years, been a contributor um, to, to Guardian Australia. As I said, you and I met at the Sunday Age. You started on Melbourne suburban newspapers... You've had an extraordinary career, Paul, including time at the Bulletin. And for a lot of your career in recent years, you've been juggling so many other writing balls in the air, you know, playwriting and essay writing and non-fiction work, and Jesus Town is your second novel. You've won awards. There's a, there's a raft of them, um, but two particular books I wanted to mention because I loved them so much, and when I owned a bookshop, we sold a lot of them. One was your book on the Collingwood Football Club, <laughs> right. which you can imagine in Melbourne did really well. Yeah. I know you thought I was going to say the seminal work on Canberra, didn't you? <laughs> oh, look, you know, the, the Collingwood A Love Story was from one particular bookshop, one of the most stolen books in Melbourne at one point, I'm told. Um, so, so, you know, I've, not, I've got no doubt it was, it was popular, but it was time to come out with the um, – it came out the week of the 2011 grand final which Collingwood was supposed to win, of course, but they didn't. But still, people still talk about it, mm. um, which is great. It would, look, it was a, um, what do you call it, a, uh, a bit of a, an indulgence project for me because of my family's background and connection with the club and, and all of that. But I just loved well, it. was lovely. It. To, to me, it was very much a, a Melbourne story, although, of course, it has national appeal mm. for anybody who loves Australian football. The other book, of course, was Beersheba. came out a few years ago, a book of, of immense importance a look at one of the, the most important military campaigns in Australian history with an incredible outcome. So that is a great book as well. But the novel writing is so interesting because I just feel like you were born to write like this. And I wondered, do you have a preferred genre or medium? It, it, and does the idea come and then you work out, okay, I can see this perhaps as a non-fiction book or, or a fiction book? And specifically in relation to Jesus Town. Because I have a feeling that the the nub of the idea of this might have come out from some of your journalistic work. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, the genesis of this was really in all the thought and all the words I've dedicated in journalism and non-fiction to, to that really broad space of national identity and where all the bits fit in. So where that, you know, 60, 80, 100,000 years of, of uh, Indigenous civilization of this continent fits in where it meets 1770, 1788 and, of course, that seminal date of 1915, which so much of white Australia for so long has clung to as the national moment, you know, of formation. Even though we were defeated by the and pushed back oh, by the Turks. Details. <laughs> you know, um, it's... <laughs> It's one of one of those things. It's extraordinary, uh, isn't it, that we can form a national identity on such a 
botched military campaign. Yeah, I think... Which we actually had no control in either. I don't know if it's apocryphal, but, you know, when um, Alan Bond won the America's Cup, this is according to Les Carlyne, he said, um, you know, this is just like Gallipoli. We had our backs up against the wall and we won that one too, you know. <laughs> so I don't know that... I mean, I think times have changed a little bit, but there is this sense that it was the, the loss of so much blood and youth and, and the generational trauma that came from not just that operation, but, but the whole of World War I, all those, all those men killed, 60,000 killed, 300,000, you know, maimed, that that was somehow this kind of spiritual beginning for the nation. I've never quite understood it. Sure, it's a really important part of our history, but so is the profound impact of that loss on the fledgling nation. But I think more importantly, where does every where does it fit into everything else that came before it? Mm, I was going to say, what about the sixty thousand years of civilization before that? Yeah, and the you know by some accounts, you know, sixty, eighty thousand indigenous people who died defending this land from seventeen eighty eight. You know that is something that that has been totally alive in indigenous uh, consciousness since seventeen eighty eight, and and. Is being has been reckoned with, you know, really extensively through Indigenous history, art, writing, the arts generally. And, you know, it's no accident that that is now sort of come to the fore of national consciousness, but there hasn't been enough, in my view, non-Indigenous or white listening to that. Mm. Um, there's been a lot of talking over it. Yeah. So with Jesus Town. If I had discovered, and you can you can give us the elevator pitch on the story, but if I had discovered the things that you would have discovered, my first instinct as a journalist would have been to to, to document this in a non-fiction way. What was your feeling about it? What did you discover and what was the story for you and why did it end up being fiction? Look, I came across other people's discoveries really. One of the things that was really sort of important or formative um, for the novel for me were these collections, these vast collections, and I hate to call them collections because they involve human remains, but um, these collections of uh, ancestral remains that are in our, some of our institutions, national institutions and state institutions. So, Which was stolen. Stolen, yeah. Ransacked from burial grounds, stolen from state institutions like hospitals and asylums. These are the remains of Indigenous people. They became collectibles throughout um, the late 19th and uh, 20th century, right into the mid-20th century. They were still being collected by people who made it their business to ransack graveyards and and, um, and steal from um, state institutions. They had a medical value to these people. They had sort of a scientific value. They had a curio value as well. So people reduced to collectible items. And, and, and for, a cult, for, for, for a culture that that so deeply honours it, the elders who have passed. It's just such a shocking, shocking thing to have happened to Aboriginal communities. Yes, and there is such a deep kind of spiritual resonance to having the remains of someone who's died buried in the country, the very ground um, from whence they came. So in Indigenous spiritual consciousness to have the bodies removed and stolen and put in cardboard boxes and kept in museums overseas or in Australia, it's, it's a heresy. So there's this real imperative to, to get them back, but that's really hard to do. I mean, there was a room, uh, a storage room at the South Australian Museum that I'd been into that at one point 
had the remains of 4,600 people in cardboard boxes there. And that's quite a feeling when you're in there. But it really made me think, hey, this is testimony to some sort of colonial and post-colonial crime scene. And why aren't we all concerned with this? And I, in my mind... Can you explain the feeling? It was deeply unsettling. It was sort of funereal. It was also a feeling of uh, presence, like... There were, there was a there was a heresy in that room. There was a there is there, there were there were people in that room. They weren't just items in in boxes, and there was a, a huge sense of injustice about it. Now, to the credit of that institution and and the South Australian government, some of those remains are being reburied in uh, a plot that's been given to the local Ghana people by the South Australian Cemeteries Trust, and that's fantastic. But a lot of them can't be um, provenance. They don't know where they come from. They've come from somewhere from that whole half of the continent because South Australian Museum was um, one of the very early um, museums in Australia. So some of them may never return to country, uh, in which case it really has to be figured out what's to be done with them. So, you know, keeping places, sure. Again, for me, the juxtaposition is between that and the way... Non-Indigenous Australia has revered the remains of its Anzacs, for example. So if ever you've been to Europe or, or indeed, um, you know, the Middle East or anywhere where Australians fought and died, there is a really kind of reverential commemoration of, of remains buried in beautiful, peaceful Commonwealth War cemeteries with clipped grass and rosemary and little white headstones. So the contrast to me is pretty profound, you know. So give us the elevator pitch on Jesus Town. Well, you, you'll have to perfect this. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Town is a you know a, a, a novel of about multi generational black capital B and white trauma and history. It's set somewhere in the north northeast northwest of Australia coastal um, Jesus Town. The name just came to me. I needed a a a old mission town, and I'd visited a few and read about a lot. And it seemed to me that Jesus Town was the perfect name. I read somewhere you drew a little drawing of what it might look like. I did. <laughs> this is this is my HSC artist coming through. Um, I, got I, I, I have one of those in, inside me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I won the HSC art prize at the at the school I went oh, to. Oh, okay. I'm uh, not that good. <laughs> and at one point I was going to go to art college. So for me it was either going to be writing, journalism or visual art. But anyway, I got out my coloured pencils once I'd sort of decided this is where where the story was going to gravitate to and um, I drew the place, you know, with the old mission, the, the weird place called No Pass, the little cemetery, Tamar and Jericho's place up on the up on the bluff and the beach and a few other few other things. And once I'd done that, I actually found I could write it. And one of the things I love doing in my journalism and, and longer form non-fiction and now fiction is writing about place. I really love describing sort of landscape and smell mm. and, um, and, and, and sense of a place. So, so you very cleverly don't tell the reader exactly where this is on the north coast of Australia, but in your mind's eye, where did you have it? Or where were you drawing inspiration from? So I was drawing inspiration from a whole lot of places actually, some in the south some in closer to the centre, some in the some in the north across um, across Queensland, the territory and um, and WA. So it's kind of a it's kind of a melding of all of them. 
And in my mind's eye, it really became a place that I hadn't been to. It's got elements of some of the places I had been to, but a lot of imagined elements too. Uh, and I didn't geolocate it, you know, precisely because what happens there happened everywhere in, in Australia and I didn't want to sort of, I didn't think it was right to, to locate it within one actual community because I felt like that would have diminished the continental experience, the enormity of what happened in this country, which was really an apocalypse if you were, if you and your family and your ancestors had been here for 60,000 plus years, it was a total apocalypse and it didn't happen in one place. So that's why I, I was vague about it and created Arcadia, which kind of has a, has a resonance of, of beauty and peace, which is a little bit ironic too. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. Your main character who is, well, there are two main characters, but the first one we're introduced to is historian Patrick Renmark, who kind of in picturing that he's around about your age, mid-50s maybe, maybe a little bit younger than that, I'm not sure. He's He grew up in Melbourne. He did all the private school things and ended up living in London where he becomes a populist historian. I suppose that's the best way to describe him. Yeah, he's... Um He's the result of kind of enormous generational privilege and male privilege too. It's interesting. Someone last night said to me, this is a book about the patriarchy. And I actually hadn't considered that, but it's it's kind of true. Um, anyway, you're right. Patrick did all that sort of stuff and he kind of went on a... Reluctantly went into, um, into the History Academy, but he did okay because he kind of entered the Academy at a time where there was enormous pressure on universities here and overseas to get more bang for their buck, to have their academics facing outwards more and to produce, to write and, hey, to sell books. And Patrick kind of sniffed the breeze with all of this hoopla and uh, emotion going on about, um, you know, the hundred years, uh, 100th anniversary, uh, anniversary of the Gallipoli landings and decided he was going to, that was his market, he was going to write stories about, you know, white-hatted Aussie soldiers mostly and adventurers. He just doesn't write about women. And his soldiers are all heroes, pretty much. He's a pretty monodimensional guy. And, like, I don't think it's an unfair space for me to... I'm not pillaring it. I'm just saying, hey, this is a fact. I go into an airport bookshop and I did it yesterday or the day before. And, you know, there's that vast history section, but it is largely, you know, occupied by blokes writing about blokes with guns and... They're all fairly kind of benign and, and heroic stories. And a lot of them are about the past, but some of them are about the really recent things that have happened really recently, not least in a lot of stories about you know Australian guys operating in the Middle East that don't necessarily, necessarily pass what has happened there. And all, all of that's now sort of coming out and going full circle. So, yeah, that's, that's Patrick. And um, he knows that he's shallow and vacuous. And he does, he makes a lot of money and he sells a lot of books, but he does sort of crave some adulation. Yeah, he does. Well, respectability or something. Yeah, respectability. Professional respectability. That's, that's the word. There's something slightly inauthentic about the, the particular spectacles that he has on the, perched on his nose. And the, I think it's a little cravat or something he usually wears when he's not in Australia. But And he has the slightly affected English accent and he's he has a lovely wife and child. And then suddenly... 
he is struck down by tragedy and after weeks, months, I don't know how long really, but after a long period of time of too much booze and too many pills to dull the pain, he realises that he should fulfil this obligation he has to a publishing house to write the story of his grandfather, Nathaniel Renmark, who Mm. was one of Australia's first autodidactic, I guess, anthropologists who um, became obsessed, I guess we could say, with life in the top end and Indigenous cultures, Aboriginal cultures. So take us on the journey of Nathaniel and sure. and how and why Patrick just despised him so much. Patrick really, in the end, had nowhere else to go from London. You know, his life was in ruins. His his wife had sort of quite indulged him. You know, never really kind of made him look in the mirror. He's he had a lover too, who was significantly younger. But I wasn't going to give that away. So she all the snogging between the bookshelves in the library. She, she didn't really indulge him. She called him out on his on his nonsense and his self-deceit. And in a way, she was she was his conscience. I won't say anything more about her, but I, I found her a really interesting character and I spent a lot of time developing her as a woman with real agency <laughs> too. And that was that was important to me. But um, anyway, Patrick winds up in Jesus Town because he's got nowhere else to go. He's already taken part of the massive advance for the book on his grandfather, which he'd never intended to write. He's up there and suddenly he's got to negotiate the this mad archive, like it's a, a it's a great big filing cabinet full of his grandfather's stuff. It's and like it, and it's a personal museum in a way. It's old a old man Rennie sort of left it under the care of a couple of the indigenous friends he'd made there and who were friends of Patrick's as well. And but it's 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 just a quagmire of yeah. Crap, isn't it? Well, it's unnegotiable, really. I mean, there's gold in there somewhere, you know. There's everything he ever wrote and thought is in there, but it's it's not, not ordered. You know, the other character, Jericho, who's a real historian, he was supposed to order it, but he's got other stuff to do, like bring the human remains home. Rennie was progressive for his day. He believed in uh, Indigenous autonomy, that the people of Jesus Town and, and, and um, Arcadia should just be left alone to get on with it, that white men should leave them alone. The only exception to that being him because he wanted to be the inside... He wanted to do the inside job on who they were to document them and to chronicle them. And as part of that, in the end, he brought through um, an international and American scientific expedition, really as a self to his own ego to show the world how much he knew. And so it was interesting... Best intentions lead to really terrible consequences. And his altruism, as paternalistic as it might have been, and it wasn't as paternalistic by any means as, as many of the uh, missionaries and anthropologists operating at that time, but it has pretty bad consequences. And, you know, he'd been storied into this guy who was the saviour of the people and Australian history, Australian frontier history is full of white saviour tropes. In the end, I really wanted to flip that trope and get people to ask, well, who was it that saved who? And what did he exactly do? And so as part of that, we play in the space of what's remembered, what's actual, and what's storified, what's become just story, you know? The character and his constant conflict, and later on in life when he realises that he actually did overstep the mark, 
that in a way he's almost like all the other carpetbaggers they used to jam is quite incredible for me because we I come from a family of um, there were Methodist missionaries and oh. and ministers in my family, and one one relative in particular worked on a mission up there, and I don't know this. I don't know this at all, but I would imagine it was at the time of taking children away because they thought it was the right thing to do mm. and putting them in institutions or bringing them to the missionary. Mm. And they're, they're our family. And and I wonder now, when they look back on, on that time in the 50s and 60s, what are the regrets, what are the feelings when you think that you're doing the right thing and, in fact, you've created part of the problem? Pe- people are complex and, you know, a lot is forgiven in Australia as being sort of symptomatic of a certain time or, or epoch. The mission experience was really mixed and, you know, in a way I'm not super qualified to talk about... I'm certainly not qualified to talk about its personal impact, but I've spoken to a number of people about it and read a lot about it. And some of the reading I've done is really disturbing. You heard a lot of stories last week during NADOC week about the cruelty that some families experienced in some missions. Some were really compassionate and genuinely altruistic. They all wanted to bring God to the, quote, godless natives, unquote. But, uh, and, and there was an imposition in that sense. Some embraced God, and, of course, that's part of indigenous the belief set of some Indigenous people today melded with that deep, traditional spirituality that's connected to country and the land and uh, a animated landscape made by the spirit animals. But, you know, for some, the experience was just one of, one of cruelty and absolute oppression. And children were separated from, from parents. Older people were told who they could and couldn't marry. There was a lot of, a lot of physical punishment and there was a lot of sexual violence too, some of it perpetrated by uh, the missionary men. There are a lot of children in some places born to missionaries in those, in those communities. So it's complex and it's difficult and it's really fraught. Well, you have a sense of all of that as you're reading, reading about Jesus Town, the place. And for Patrick, who is in his grandfather's shack, drinking a fair bit of booze, but Gradually, that stops as well as he becomes more and more entrenched in this story, and you just kind of you actually create Paul quite quite an anxiety in the reader because we're willing this to have a good outcome, but when all skeletons are, are revealed out of the cupboard, is this a good or bad thing? And who knows what's going to happen to Patrick? But I'd love you to just introduce us to Patrick if you wouldn't mind, if you can have give us a little taste of it, a little taste of the book, and perhaps read something from Jesus Town. Sure, love to. So this is when Patrick first arrives in Jesus Town. He's um, Jericho, the local man who he hasn't seen since he was a kid, uh, has picked him up in his ute and has driven him into town. This is Patrick. In my memory, this place was sprawling and bigger with many more and larger buildings. Reality diminishes Jesus Town. Some adults sit on their verandas or on big mats on the earth outside their houses. A number are busy making things painting and weaving and carving. A number of women sitting on their haunches are making some sort of coloured mats. Men hack and sandpaper away at big pieces of wood. On another veranda, two men and a woman are untangling and mending a vast fishing net. I can't but wonder what else they all do all day. Perversely, though, to me, they do seem happy and busy. 
animated with talk and laughter as they share food and tend to the smaller children. The kids chase each other and the dogs. It's barely 11 in the morning. Between a number of the houses, small gardens have been dug out of the earth. I notice rows of greens, chilies, tomatoes, peppers and golden heads of corn. Women, mostly the older ones, tend these veggie patches. It all exudes less deprivation and neglect than my memory allowed for. Yet I have only reproving impressions of this place as grim, depressing, inhospitable, unseemly. Impressions coloured by my mood. My body is tense. I don't want to stay here. Not for even a day. The litter is not as bad as it was when I was a kid. Still, there's empty cans, paper packaging, old household appliances and plastic water bottles strewn about. A few plastic bags dance low to the ground, floating on the gusty wind like so many small lost souls. I open the window. The moist air is thick with aromas, animals, human, of damp wood and smoke, and things cooking on barbecues in small fires in drums and in shallow pits. Of fried food from the shop, chicken, chips, dim sims, dimmies. Tamar and I used to buy fried dimmies and soy from that takeaway. It's all there. I say, Jericho, I don't mean to be rude. He interrupts. I just know what your next word is going to be. But. However, well, no, it's actually a serious question, and I'm genuinely interested in the answer. It's just that there seems to be, well, almost as much rubbish about as when I was a kid. Jericho says, fair enough, bro. The truth is, my people have never really understood white man's rubbish. We've never come to deal with it properly. A legacy of colonialism, you know. You see, we catch a fish, cook him, eat him, then we leave his bones in the fire. But you people, well, you pay someone to catch him, someone else to cook him and serve him to you in white cardboard. Then you go and eat him, and you leave the container for the rubbish man. What you see here is white man's rubbish. Blame the missionaries, if you like. Blame Macca, the prick in the takeaway who gives us thick arteries and diabetes with his chips and fucking chicken salt. But don't blame us black fellas for white fella rubbish. Ugh, the Marxist colonial deconstruction of the litter problem in a black community. I hear my mother. If you can't say anything nice, I remain silent. It's fabulous. And, you know, the secondary, the secondary characters of Jericho and his twin sister Tamar, who also is a charismatic leader of the community, and the, the complicated but beautiful character that is the former AFL star from Jesus Town, who is brought down to Melbourne par when he returns to Melbourne, which is not all that regularly, but keeps an eye out for him. Mm. And there he is. Patrick sees him there struggling with alcohol, still can kick a footy, mm. but it just is such a reminder of just the the complicated relationship between black and white Australia. Yeah, and you and I are really familiar with that story being, you know, AFL tragics. It's changed a lot. This is this is a while ago. Uh, Aki, I think, the former footy player, he won a, won a Brownlow, I think. He is a really complex guy. He, sure, like so many... Fellows of his era who were taken into clubs because they're brilliant footies, footy players weren't looked after pastorally in the way they could have been. They weren't supported. But he comes home and he's really wise. He knows a lot and he can see straight through Patrick. And Patrick weirdly gravitates towards him because I think Aki sees into him and sort of can see his malady and tell him, help him heal in a way. He makes, he makes him feel better. And this is, again, the thing I was trying to do, which is flip that sort of white saviour trope. I think Patrick and his grandfather actually end up feeling quite safe in this place, whereas they don't feel safe anywhere else. Mm, and, I think that's a really beautiful way of saying it. 
I certainly felt safe toward the end in Jesus Town. I must say when the aeroplane arrived and Patrick gets off, you share his bewilderment at the different sounds and heat and dogs everywhere. Dogs are a big part of this story. <laughs> Do- dogs, are big, dogs are a big part of my life, you know. I, yeah, I, 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 well, they're in the book. There are a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's often many dogs in, in those communities and they're much loved. And, and they're much loved. And, 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 and there's the peace, but it gradually, Patrick's, the beat of his life, it just starts to settle and, and then he, he's on this massive investigation of his grandfather, which is, is pretty compelling. It, it is, and you know, I got lost in that in the same way that he did, and I don't have any answer. You know, a lot of people say to me, "I want to know what happened. Did he write the book? You know, did he ever finish doing what he went there to do?" And it's really interesting because as soon as he gets there, you know, Artie, Amelia, and Jericho, and Tamar, and even Aki, I think, say to him, "We don't care whether you write the book or not. We don't really care why you're here, but you're safe here." and in a way, if he was ever the kind of guy who was self-aware enough to sort himself out, then maybe that is the only place where he could where he could do it. I think there is a sense in the end that he's he's calmed, that he's mm. kind of coming to terms with what he's done to himself and to people he loved, and I think that's a reckoning. But you know, I don't know that there's any sort of finality to it. I don't know that he's redeemed, and you know, there's 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 quite an interesting ending, I think, but. It doesn't tie everything up. No, not at all. But that's our job, isn't it, as readers? <laughs> that's right. And, you know, I've been really gratified you know, by a number of people who've read it saying to me, I've walked away thinking about it. I'm still thinking about what happened. And that's great because it means people are going to think about the other stuff in the book, like the terrible things that happened on the colonial frontier too. Well, it's it's a book, as I said last night at our event, it's a book that's laden with themes and issues and terrific characters and I think just as a book club book, if nothing else. It, it is a fabulous book for us all to read, as are so many books that um, of recent times that follow Indigenous themes. I often find in book clubs that they, are, they make the most fabulous fodder for discussion. So I'm really glad that we've got this with us. Yeah, well, thanks, Corey. I think Australia's at a point where, you know, it's really starting to think much harder about all of these things. And, you know, I know a lot of black writers have done like enormous amounts of fantastic work in this space. And my feeling, you know, I thought very hard about whether I was going to write this book in, in the same way as I've thought very hard about, you know, writing non-fiction in the Indigenous space. And one of the things that made me want to do it was black, capital B, writers, journalists saying to me, hey, you know, we carry the load for all of this. We are forever telling the colonisers, the white people, the white readers, what they need to know about what happened. It's time that that load was shared. And I kind of thought I should use whatever small voice I have to be to be a part of that. So it was really important to me in that sense. Well, your characters, your two characters, Patrick and his grandfather, really do that, Paul. So what's, um, what's the next writing project on the agenda? You're going to take some time off, I understand. Yeah, I'm taking some time off journalism stuff, so I won't be writing for The Guardian again until probably about next March. So... Uh, I'm around a bit, a bit more present for family, which is great because I was while I was there physically, I wasn't always there when I was when I was finishing this. So you would have had Patrick and and old man Rennie chatting to you. Yeah, on my shoulders constantly <laughs> and in my dreams as well. Um, so I I have st- I started writing something else a little while ago, and I'm really interested 
in notions of male friendship and, and how men support each other or otherwise as, as they get older and um, how, how they interact and, you know, how that might have changed from the times when they were younger. So really I'm sort of going to the well of kind of my own experience and stuff that happened to me as a student and I'm basing... I really want to write about Sydney, but I grew up in Melbourne and I was a student here and I just went past my old student house in Hoddle Street, actually. And um, so it's it's really sort of digging into my own past, but I've, I'm developing these characters who catch up later in life, having known each other when they were much Oh, younger. I love the idea of a reunion story. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? I mean, you know, the big chill, you know. <laughs> Dare I say, the it. ABC, when they commissioned... Television shows, they also love a reunion. They do, about. don't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Could be working in your favour. So tell us, if you were marooned in the top end or indeed on a desert island, what would be your chosen book to have with you or indeed author or authors that you'd love to have with you? You know the answer to that. It's uh, I have George Johnson's Meredith trilogy, My Brother Jack, Clean Straw for Nothing and A Cartload of Clay. You know, I've had... Really we have to say here that you and I share an absolute <laughs> obsession with George Johnson. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was thinking last night, I was actually talking to my sister about it, and um, I was thinking, gosh, your dad would have known him. Yeah, probably. Well, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I, would, I, would yeah. Have, I would have thought their paths would have crossed when, because George was at, the, um, was at the Argus. Dad was dad didn't start in journalism until just after the war, but I'm sure there would have uh, been, yeah. there might have been, you know... So John, Johnson was a legend of that war. You know, Such a legend. Le- legendary war correspondent. And then he um, was posted to London in, I think, the late 40s and then they went on their own trip to, to Greece, to Hydra. He and Charmian Clift. He, he and Charmian yeah, Clift, yeah, yeah, who was in, his wife. incredibly talented and, um, you know, really his muse but sort of eclipsed by his personality and um, the reception to his books eventually. There's something I've I've been to Hydra and and I've kind of wanted to see the house and where they lived and all that sort of stuff, but there is something about his books, particularly the first one, My Brother Jack, that sort of introduced me to another wartime Australia, to that period after the First World War where there was really this generation of crippled men emotionally and physically wandering these streets, Melbourne, and he wrote so evocatively about Melbourne of that time and then. Uh, about how that kind of that mood uh, carried over into the Second World War. So it's, it's really an anti-war book in some ways, and it set me. It's another thing that's kind of set me thinking about all this ANZAC stuff and the way it's been lionised. But I'm not sure I'd want to be stuck on the island with George because <laughs> I think he could be pretty difficult company. But I'd certainly There'd be a cert- bit of booze involved there too if you could get it onto the island. Certainly keep keep his books with me. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a really good choice. And, and you know, I would also throw in there the collections of Charmian's own newspaper articles and columns that she used so to I'm write. I'm reading that at the moment. Oh, she's such a great I'm, writer. I'm carrying it around in my bag because it's easy to dip into and out of. Yeah. You know, when I haven't got a lot of, you know, band, bandwidth at the moment and I, I was reading some of it yesterday. And she was a fantastic writer, really good writer. I think she's a better writer than him. I actually think so too. Um, and it's interesting that, I don't know if you read Polly Sampson's novel about them on, yeah. on Hedra. Yeah. Fantastic novel. Um, she's Name escapes me at the moment, yeah, but same. I can see the cover. I can see the cover on the bookshelf. And she's a British writer. She's a really interesting writer actually, and her partner is David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. Really? Yeah, yeah. And um, she became totally captivated by Charmian and... She writes about how 
when he was writing My Brother Jack on Hydra. You know, he was at the end of his health. He was alcoholic. He was really not a successful writer. He would sit there typing and pass the pages to her. and She would read them and say yes or no. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I had a sense that there was that there was great truth in it. And then, anyway, he comes back to Melbourne, uh, sorry, to Sydney, invalid, and kind of this is his last shot, and he's written the great Australian novel, and he wins the Miles Franklin. But life wasn't good, you know, and bad things happened to them both and to the family. And to the children, It's a yeah. very sad story, actually. It's a great story, so could you please write that <laughs> one? You know, I know I keep nagging you. That would be great. Paul, I have just loved our chat today, but also last night too. I think Jesus Town is just a monumentally important novel and I think probably at the end of the year when the reviewers do their assessment of what packed a punch and what did well, Jesus Town will be right up there. Congratulations to you for this beautiful book. Oh, thanks, Corrie, and thanks for all your support and and interest in the chat today. It's been wonderful. Thanks for joining the book pod. No worries. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.